Welcome to our new episode of the FCJ Youth Network's Home is Here podcast. All uprooted youth are welcome. The United Nations General Assembly proclaimed 24th January as International Day of Education in celebration of the role of education for peace and development. The right to education is enshrined in Article 26 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The declaration calls for free and compulsory elementary education, but the Convention on the Rights of the Child adopted in 1989 goes further and stipulate that countries shall make higher education accessible to all. Access to primary education is widely recognized as a universal right by most nations and in many countries, this right to education encompasses post-primary levels as well. However, this fundamental right is often not extended to refugees and non-status youth. Successive reports by the UNHCR and other humanitarian agencies indicate that refugees, displaced and non-status people often experience multiple barriers and disruptions in education. Following migration to Canada, refugee youth experience a considerable increase in family responsibilities and often find themselves having to become interpreters, service navigators and caretakers for their families, which reduces their time to advance in their education. Refugee youth also face difficulties in getting information and guidance about the Canadian education and may find that their previous educational level is not properly recognized in Canada. Youth also face important barriers to pursuing their education, particularly when it comes to tertiary education. Hi, my name is Stefan, the Youth and Access to Education Coordinator at FCJ Refugee Centre. And today on Home is Here, we will take a closer look at the reality faced by refugee and non-status children and youth when it comes to accessing the education system in Canada. We have a discussion with Dr. Tyler Korea from the FCJ Refugee Centre Uprooted U program, which is focused on post-secondary education and the testimony of a mother who will tell us about her experience in the schooling of her children. For years, the FCJ Refugee Centre has been supporting refugee and non-status youth to integrate into the Canadian education system through our access to education programs, including our Uprooted U program, which focuses on post-secondary education. Joining us today to talk about this, we have Dr. Tyler Korea, recent PhD graduate from York University's Canada's Social and Political Thought Program and a key member of the FCJ Refugee Centre Uprooted U program. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to uh, our podcast. Um, if I could ask you to briefly introduce yourself and the program that you supported here and, and any insights that you have from the time that you've been hosting the program. Thank you, Stefan. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Tyler Correa. I'm a recent uh, PhD graduate at York University. Um, and my research has been sort of motivated by um, 
sort of understanding, uh, especially migrant rights movements uh, and other forms of activisms that take place uh, in, in cities in particular, uh, uh, and especially where sort of uh, uh, formulations of citizenship are challenged by, by people sort of uh, on, a, on a grassroots or everyday level um, in, in the ways that they're like just, you know, developing relationships with each other or uh, or uh, working alongside each other and living alongside each other. And in that sense, the, the, the very idea of citizenship is sort of getting in the way instead of um, providing them with an outlet to, to sort of uh, expand those, uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, organic connections that they're making. Um, in that sense, the Uprooted U program has sort of fit within uh, my life as uh, an opportunity to uh, involve myself with the, the community of Toronto, um, and in particular, people who have sort of precarious status or uh, uh, or uh, who are just uh, preparing the the documentation for status, especially uh, folks going through the refugee process or uh, humanitarian and compassion interviews, um, and really finding ways to to continue engaging in a sort of a communal understanding of you know what does it mean to to live in the city that we all do um so in our hopes that we can sort of place something in front of everyone uh we we often spend a good amount of time talking about recent research in uh, migration studies um just as, as something that can be sort of a jumping off point for people talking about their own personal experiences uh and so that we can have uh you know more practical discussions around like yeah, the, the different documentations that might go into, uh, you know, everyday living in Toronto, like uh, uh, preparing the documentation for a social insurance number and the like. Thank you so much, Tyler. And I believe congratulations would be in order. It Thank would you. be Dr. Korea now, if I, I'm I not wrong. So. <laughs> That's really nice, Tyler. Uh, and bouncing off of what you were talking about, about Uprooted You, um, I know you've been hosting uh, Uprooted You generously uh, for the previous iterations. So what, what are some of the similarities you've seen in the iterations before and uh, perhaps some of the challenges you've noticed that are, have been consistent throughout those periods? You know, in hopes of maintaining you know, a certain amount of continuity with the program, uh, we, we really do stress um, uh, the, the, the fact that Uprooted You in, in its like barest form in, in its sort of shell uh, is a space for people who can engage with the, the sort of uh, simulated environment of a post-secondary education in migration studies, probably one that you would find in uh, like the first year of a university class. Um, you know, increasingly though, we, we found it much more relevant to the people who were involved in Uprooted You to be able to sort of expand some of our discussions into just more practical registers. And this was something that we noticed because uh, a lot of people who were, you know, around uh, middle age or early middle age uh, were interested in joining the Uprooted You program alongside, for example, their uh, ESL training and other kinds of training uh, and, and to sort of have a space where they could work but also where they could get like more practical information about like how do I uh, attain housing and 
Uh, how do I navigate the education system having already uh, been educated in my country of origin and now coming here? Like what kinds of uh, possible training or credentials might I need? Um, so, so we've increasingly tried to open up space to have those kinds of conversations as well as having, you know, some kind of like academic reading to, to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting that from what I gathered from what you were sharing, it's like the emphasis is more on practicality and comprehension alongside this understanding of the education system and um, approaching post-secondary education regardless of that age and breaking into that system here in Canada. Um, Absolutely. We, we really do like to, to be inclusive in the, the way that we sort of uh, approach a, a space like this. By and large, because it's also, you know, a space that can be uh, sort of uh, made and remade by the people who participate in it, right? The, the, the kinds of things that they might be interested in discussing are relevant to this space. And so, you know, being able to sort of take that into account has been uh, very helpful. I don't know if this is something that you're comfortable sharing, but um, perhaps maybe uh... If you identify as a newcomer or not, and maybe what drew you to migration studies as your area of um, studies? Yeah, you know, I I am not a newcomer to to Canada myself. I was actually born and raised in London, Ontario. Um, but my father um, is a uh, a Portuguese immigrant uh, from the Azores Islands um, around the you know. 1950s and 1960s there there were a number of uh azorian uh, migrants not necessarily refugees uh, uh but certainly they were fleeing say uh the military conscription and the the fascist government of uh, salazar which was you know pretty pretty long-standing but was about to to sort of fall um and they were they were really looking for better uh, economic prospects because the island had been sort of um, not really generating uh, new jobs for for these young folks. So um, they they sort of uh, came over in the nineteen sixties. Uh, I, I think the the sort of formative experiences that uh, that that he had and the the way that he imparted those experiences through storytelling was actually a, a very important part uh, for me um, taking on the work that I did. Um, but it was also sort of uh, uh, an intellectual adventure to to uh, to sort of fall into uh, migration refugee uh, studies, um, something that that was already sort of very concerning to me because of the background, but uh, could could very well have expanded or developed in a number of different ways. Thank you so much for sharing, Tyler. And I think that's so important that you mentioned how even as folks who, who might be first generation, second generation Canadian, it really doesn't matter because most of us have at some point in, in one of the previous generations migrated to Canada. Mm -hmm. So talking about like the demographics of like the people you've seen who you've worked with, particularly maybe in the Uprooted You programming, what has been that sort of demographic of people, like their, their recent immigration status or their economic and family um, background and social standings? What has been something that you've noticed there and perhaps some barriers you've noticed that have been common uh, amongst the populations you've worked with? I, I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced that 
for the most part, the, the people who end up um, uh, signing up for the Uprooted U course um, are, are people who are in the relatively early stages of trying to to sort of settle in Canada. Um, they're also often people who take on a great deal of responsibility for uh, family care and also like take on the financial responsibility of the people that uh, might depend on them. Um, so so the, the sort of task that is in front of them is like great. It is extremely um, uh, difficult and they take on a great deal of responsibility. I have a lot of respect for the, the people who do that. Um, at the same time, what I what I find pretty consistently is that um, the the sort of the migration system in Canada constantly demands an excess of waiting, just kind of waiting around, uh, where the the people that I encounter are really looking for an opportunity to begin working, you know, to 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 sort of get some of these really important things uh, that they're working on settled as early as they can so that they can sort of build from there. Um, one of the biggest challenges that they face is just like how long the documentation or paperwork processes can take or the, the fact that they're sort of waiting in a queue for a refugee hearing, for example. And th that's all sort of time that they can't be sort of dedicating to something. Uh, which is why you know we have the uprooted you program in the first place. It sort of offers people uh, some kind of outlet to to start building uh, communal relationships and start talking with each other and sort of developing connections with each other instead of just having to wait. That's uh, definitely interesting that you mentioned that wait time, Tyler, because that's something that we notice happen a little too often. And using that as like a segue from uprooted you into like the education system in Ontario, like post-secondary education. Uh, what would you say are some of the uh, challenges that you've noticed uh, maybe as a teacher in the uprooted program, but maybe also as a post-secondary student yourself with some of your peers perhaps of uh, folks who either may be refugees, non-status, or just general newcomers in accessing post-secondary education in Ontario? Well, I, you know, I find, and I, I find it can be really upsetting that um, uh, sort of a, a person who, by, by, by every account, sort of accidentally um, just sort of already has um, a, a basis to draw from in Canada, right? If they were sort of born here or if they were, uh, you know, relatively lucky enough to to emigrate relatively early on or without a lot of the obstructions that we uh, find uh, working in, in this particular kind of work, um, I, I find that those folks will end up making their way into university at all um, uh, in greater numbers uh, than, you know, some of the people that, that we have the opportunity to deal with on, a, on an everyday basis. And I, I think being in that kind of position where you can see both like who's just making their way into university, who's making their way into say uh, graduate schools, um, which are, you know, a, a step uh, like more 
more difficult often and more competitive than just an undergraduate degree are usually people who have you know a great amount of privilege to to be able to uh, take on that kind of uh, research. Um, they are extremely thoughtful and intelligent people, regardless, but also potentially not more so than than the people that we encounter on a daily basis in in this work. Uh, and I find that can be really challenging, you know, being able to to meet some some very thoughtful, curious, uh, uh, like motivated people who have to do a, a number of extra things to to sort of prove themselves before even having the opportunity to sort of go to grad school in the first place. Um, on the other hand, you know, having having people who um, uh, who we interact with uh, daily, we can also say that, you know, the, the FCJ Refugee Center, it exists and it provides a lot of different kinds of uh, support. So the, there have been at least one or two people on, on my mind that I know of uh, who have uh, successfully sort of uh, hurdled those those obstacles, uh, and you know have have you know gone to say uh, uh, do a master's in social work or the like, and have been very successful doing it, uh, which is something that we can be very happy about, uh, very proud about in our small uh, sort of contributions to to their uh, their success. Yeah, definitely. I agree that as many as the challenges are, we should also be stopping to celebrate the successes and uh, positive stories that we see along the way. Um, and pulling back on your point about some of the challenges that uh, you were mentioning, like, say, some some people uh, surpass those trials and get through all of those hurdles. But now that they're actually in the post-secondary system, um, do you see any additional challenges or barriers that newcomers might face, like perhaps with uh, language or the ac academic English levels? And then following that, with all of this lack of accessing post-secondary education in itself, how does that affect um, f uh, securing employment or those prospects? No, I, I, I'm convinced that although you know, academic English, which is kind of a language of its own. And, uh, you know, the English language learning is something that a lot of newcomers will have to navigate as a challenge. I, I honestly don't think it's uh, it's sort of the obstacle that I've noticed uh, a person face. Um, by and large, because, you know, a lot of the people who we end up working with end up taking very seriously the the uh, the demand that's placed upon them to learn English both quickly and well. Um, so that's sort of something that I, I always sort of keep in mind. Um, but I do absolutely see one of the particular and recurring challenges for anyone who's going to be um, sort of uh, uh, um, identified by the post-secondary education system, especially as an international student, is how massive the tuition is. Um, I, I don't know if a lot of domestic students or uh, sort of like landed citizens in Canada recognize this, but oftentimes an international student's tuition can be as much as four times greater uh, than the average domestic. Uh, at York University, I can tell you as an example, this is uh, absolutely the case that most domestic students will pay 
uh, around five point five or six thousand dollars a year, which is no small sum. Uh, but international students are paying twenty, twenty-five, pretty, pretty expectedly. Um, so if a if a person doesn't necessarily have documentation that allows them to access the sort of domestic side, um, but they have to enroll as an international student, that that can be a massive hurdle, massive financial hurdle. Thank you, Tyler. We are going to pause for a short break and come back to this valuable discussion. In our commitment to access to education and supported by funding from Maitri, we are able to host webinars explaining the school enrollment process at both elementary and secondary levels. You can find the webinar for the TDSB on our website, and we encourage you to register and attend our webinar on the TCDSB this Thursday, January 26, 2023, starting at 4 p.m. with simultaneous Spanish interpretation. We hope to see you there. Welcome back to the Home is Here podcast. We are going to continue our conversation with Tyler. There are a lot of interesting points that I want to pull on from what you said. Uh, one being uh, going back to um, the after surpassing those challenges, a lot of them taking the courses and these programs uh, pretty seriously and, and taking that onus and, and having that internal dialogue of uh, meeting that requirement and, and being on par with their peers. And I think working with a lot of newcomers and being a newcomer myself um, and going into post-secondary education, that definitely is one of the uh, overarching narratives that I've seen be a commonality with a lot of folks. So it, it's interesting to, to know that that's something that you have observed as well. Um, and coming in terms to um, some of the things that will move into our next question in terms of changes that you would like to see in the education system. I think one of one of the important points you raised was the fees. And I definitely agree that it's astronomical fees for international students, but it's at the same time for domestic students, it's it's no laughing matter. It's 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 such a high cost for something that should be essentially available to all folks. So in terms of that, what perhaps we could uh, expand on the uh, fee structure itself and, and that system in Ontario, but including that or uh, bearing that in mind and, and moving on to other uh, changes, what, what are some of the changes you think uh, should take place in the education system, uh, both in Ontario and across Canada to improve the situation, not just for newcomers, but also perhaps for domestic students too? Yeah, Stefan, I, I, I think the, the point you raise is just so important. You're, you're absolutely right. If, um, if the average tuition for a domestic student is, you know, around $6,000 these days, I think it might be sort of creeping up towards seven or eight even, um, then that is likely very expensive for uh, landed citizens. It is potentially prohibitive for anyone who doesn't have a citizenship status, who can't rely on uh, their parents having been settled and uh, you know working in Canada for a very long time, uh, so so even the sort of uh, domestic student tuition uh, is potentially going to prohibit access. 
Um, in that sense, I think, you know, the, the sort of the practicalities of accessible post-secondary education are for me, some of some of the largest and potentially easiest kinds of changes that uh, you know a provincial or uh, a federal government can make uh, if the federal government wanted to pilot some kind of uh, program to subsidize um, uh, uh, tuition for each of the particular provinces that has the sort of uh, the the the, the uh, purview to to deliver that education. Um, I, I think this is one of those uh, moments where you know a great deal of solidarity can be generated between uh, students who who have been you know living in Canada for a long time and students who are are just sort of getting themselves established or like prospective students who are getting themselves established and want to uh, sort of involve themselves um, in in the post uh, secondary education system. Um, uh, in terms of a change, I, I think the change is actually really quite simple. It's just you know, uh, either subsidizing or uh, ensuring that education at the post-secondary level can be free. Um, something that I assume that the Canadian government is already kind of quite interested in, insofar as it makes your working population also more specialized than they already are. So what's the problem? Like, <laughs> it seems quite easy. Definitely, Thailand, and I agree with you on on that note. I think it's just a matter of them making that decision to go completely fearless. Uh, and I, I used to always be interested on this uh, one point of how international student fees got doubled and quadrupled in the in the past couple of years. When um, during, I don't, I believe it was before Harper. I'm not able to place. Uh, whose government exactly, but uh, they deregulated um, the international fee uh, system. So the colleges and universities were able to choose whatever they wanted to charge. But uh, optimistically looking forward to the future, uh, Canada is very much capable of uh, implementing systems like how Germany has where you have your elementary, secondary uh, free, but also your post-secondary with certain exceptions here and there. But for the most part, accessing post-secondary education, not just for domestic, but also international students is free. And I'm sure that Canada is very much capable of that. Uh, but on, on a positive note, have you noticed uh, from your experience and your time in, in uh, the area of education, have you noticed uh, some, uh, some situations that have evolved in the recent years that are moving on, on a path to progression um in terms of uh you know positive developments i i want to be sort of like i i want to i want to hedge a little bit and be be relatively cautious well, what i notice is that um you know the the post-secondary education system in particular exists in order to often meet sort of emergent needs of a society um and in that sense you can see um you know certain certain avenues that are like not the and this is what i'm trying to say not not the entire sort of post-secondary education uh ecosystem not like universities in general um but but very specific kinds of pathways that that might lead you to a university degree or to a college degree um that are increasingly um 
uh, sort of made accessible on purpose because it meets some kind of demands that, that our societies are now uh, facing uh, with baby boomer generations sort of becoming more and more uh, uh, aged, there's there's a, a much greater push to uh, increase the pool of uh, personal support workers, PSWs. Um, so so that's sort of an emerging um, industry or let's say a, an emerging uh, sector of our economy in which it seems like a person who uh, they wanted to could find their way uh, into that kind of training with uh, you know slightly fewer costs and the like. Um, I, I see the same with uh, a lot of uh, social work and psychologically oriented fields that um, it, it can be easier to get into these things because of uh, different kinds of subsidization structures or scholarships and awards. And then, then we should still kind of ask ourselves one of two things. On the one hand, are the, these kinds of scholarships and awards or subsidization structures, are they made available to people regardless of citizenship status? Um, and I hope some of them are, but I, I know for sure that um, uh, citizenship is often still one of the implied criteria for any kind of scholarship that a person might um, apply for. And then on the other hand, we should ask ourselves, you know, what kind of responsibility does a Canadian society have in order to not um, like exploit the the work of uh, recent migrants, right? Like, well, what kind of society just sort of relies on newcomer populations to do the work that landed citizens don't want to, right? There, there, there. I think there's a, an ethical quandary there that if you you know say to a Canadian citizen like you should be able to pursue whatever interest is of interest to you. But you say to a, a, a recent migrant, like, or a recent immigrant, like, you know, you have to do the work that we expect of you. Uh, I, I think there's still a, a pretty great um, uh, disconnect or dissonance in terms of those two narratives. So def definitely, Tyler, I, I agree with you on that. I think in this... Uh time of digital warfare where media is sort of pitting people against each other it's it's so important for us to have the right education out there and for people to be able to access that mm -hmm. i'm hopeful that moving forward we're able to to be those instruments of propagating the right information and also supporting folks in this advocacy for um, a more equitable uh, system, especially with education, because I think education is something, uh, if not a human right, it's something very close up there. So I think that's something important that we, we should all have, hopefully within the, in the uh, next couple of years, if not sooner. And sort of on that note of, um, wrapping up uh, the podcast for today uh, in in your perspective in an ideal world what would accessing education look like for folks oh wow uh you know in in an ideal world i i think education would just be exceptionally more accessible with with very few uh especially financial barriers um I, I think the education system, in particular post-secondary education um, and universities in, in and of themselves have, have a great responsibility to the societies that are increasingly global in their scope uh, to, to sort of 
find ways of making themselves relevant to the people local to them, but also, again, to, to the increasingly global societies that they're uh, sort of involved in. Um, I, I can imagine uh, an education system or a structure that does a lot more public public activity uh, instead of just calling itself a public institution. Um, I, I think the, the way that universities are sort of um, organized is often, um, often implies the sort of closed door policy that maintains certainly academic freedom, but potentially not the freedom to access academic kinds of research. Um, and what I would hope to see and continue to see is the, the sort of opening of those kinds of doors to, to allow anyone to sort of, you know, have or, or access a lecture as they see fit um, to, to sort of like take classes without having to, to sign a bunch of paperwork beforehand. So I can imagine that system uh, could exist. And I think it would be extremely edifying for the societies that it takes part in. Thank you so much, Tyler, for not only coming on uh, the podcast and sharing your insights, but also giving folks listening to the podcast some hope for moving forward with their uh, education and, and uh, future plans here in Canada. And I wish you the very best with uh, your future endeavors. And also thank you for being a, a consistent and constant uh, educator and advocate for, for folks here in Canada. Thank you so much, Stefan. Canada in November 2021. I entered as an international student and I brought my family with me. My husband hold a um, work permit and I brought my two children that then one was 13 years old and the other was six. So uh, the first thing that I tried to do was enrolling them at the TDSV and I didn't know exactly how, but I googled it and then I checked the schools that were around the place where I live and I found one that pertained to the TDSV, so it is pretty near. I found the telephone number, so I called the uh, school's office and the secretary who answered my call, uh, she said that my children weren't allowed to go to school for free because I'm an international student and then I had to pay around $16,000 uh, per child if I wanted them in public school. So um, I was in shock because when I was in my home country, I did the research and I, I thought that international students could have their minor children um, in public school for free. So she said, it wasn't the case and that I had to pay or uh, otherwise they couldn't go to school. They couldn't attend school. So I went to the refugee center and they contacted me with one person at the TDSV. I was emailing with this person. We, we were communicating and she asked me for like the basic requirements 
the passport and um, my work permit, my study permit. And she said that my children could go to school only if I continued as being here as an international student and my grades at college were over um, eight. If my grades were lower or I couldn't afford uh, to pay the next uh, school year at college, they wouldn't deny the entrance of my children to school. The rest of the school year, I didn't have any trouble, but two weeks before the school year was finished, the same person from the TDSV um, called me to say that um, she needed new paperwork for the new school year. Although my study permit um, is valid until 2024. And, um, So I decided to go directly to the TDSV offices and I talked to somebody there. The secretary was really nice and she apologized. She said that as an international student, I had the right to have my children at school for free and that I shouldn't be asked for so many requirements. And she said that my children were good to go to attend the school. Um, for the new school year and actually she said they were going to be fine until um, 2024 when my study permit um, finishes too. So during summer vacation I didn't worry at all, I thought we were fine, but two weeks before the summer uh, finished the same person from the TDSV reached me uh, through email asking me for the paperwork. And um, she said my study permit wasn't enough and my work permit was not enough either uh, because it was a co-op work permit. And then um, I explained to her that I had already gone to the TDSV offices, that they told me I was fine. And she said that she didn't care that I needed to uh, present this paperwork to her anyways. So um, I decided to send my husband's work permit and I sent her a last email telling her that if she continued asking me for extra requirements I was going to present a complaint for harassment because I had already gone to the TDSV offices and they told me that we were fine. So I didn't understand why she kept like asking for more and more things. And well, I wanted to tell my story because I know how difficult it could be for newcomers, for immigrants and refugees to enroll our children um, when the schools and or some specific persons ask us for things that they shouldn't. So it is important to be informed and have the support of organizations like the Refugee Center. Thank you. so much and uh, we will see you next time on the homeless here podcast
Don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow our Instagram account at FCJ Youth Network. And to stay up to date on all the latest fun events that we're hosting, check out our page on the FCJ Refugee Center website, www.fcjrefugeecenter.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Home is here.